Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. My name's John, and I'm joined by King's Rocks Queen, Danielle Caroli. Hey, Danielle, Hello, everyone. Oh, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> how's your week been going? It's going well. How about yours? Uh, can't complain. I uh, haven't gotten much snow. I guess I should take over the weather report. And uh, yeah, we're we're just trucking along, waiting for kidding season to start in a few weeks. I know. I was enjoying the. We had forty-two degree weather today here, and mm-hmm. I was enjoying that, especially because I had a few visitors coming to do some late season breeding. And compared to uh, Saturday, where it was negative five, and we were doing that, and today with forty-two, it made it a lot easier. I'm sure it did. <laughs> it felt like summer today. Uh, but but Danielle, we do have a guest this week. Uh, this week we, we welcome Dr. Katie Jackson, DVM of White Rock Farm, originally of West Virginia, but now enjoying the blue grasses of Kentucky. Katie is an Oberhasley and experimental breeder and also raised boar goats and Dexter Angus crossbred cattle with her family. Katie is a licensed ADGA judge and participated on a judging team in college. In 2021, Katie graduated from vet school and is now a large animal vet at a practice in Danville, Kentucky. Throughout her schooling, dairy goats were a constant in her life, and she maintained a successful herd of competitive animals and judged across the country. Today, we'll be talking to Katie about her journey through vet school and how being a licensed vet has influenced her herd's management. Welcome to the show, Dr. Katie Jackson, DVM. And I just want to make sure I'm being totally appropriate here. Uh, Some veterinarians prefer being called Dr. Katie or Dr. Jackson or addressed by their first name. Uh, Which do you prefer, Katie? It's kind of whatever. I'm not that picky. I've got a few clients that call me Dr. (laughs) Katie. Some call me Dr. Jackson. Um, Kind of by the way is good. Or just Katie, honestly. I'm not as picky as I thought I would be given all the schooling I went through. (laughs) Well, that's Do you the have thing. anybody like, who calls you Doc? Have you earned the Doc Yeah, a yet? few people. Yeah, I've earned the Doc. Only from a few people, but yeah, it's kind of nice. Well, we're excited <laughs> to have you on the show. And how, how's everything going on your farm lately? It's going pretty well. Um, just kind of quiet right now. We've got a late start to kitten season, starting kind of the end of March with a couple AIs. And then... Um, dragging it out clear into June. So not a whole lot going on right now. Just kind of waiting for those does to start kidding in a couple months. I hear you. I hear you. We're starting in March too. So it's uh, it's just a waiting game at this point, just getting through chores and yep. 30 minutes in a flash. And then pretty soon we'll be milking a couple times a day and feeding babies. <laughs> now, Danielle, I uh, want to address one thing. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, 
we have a news segment that we do. Uh, what's the name of that news segment? It is the ADGA news segment. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm just making sure that you knew how to pronounce it. I had a couple uh, concerned uh, listeners message me, and and you know, really, we we wanted to set you straight. So it is ADGA, right? It is ADGA, and it was funny because I was talking with my brother about it, and he's removed from the ADGA world, and he kind of went, huh? What are you talking about? Because I think ultimately what happened was when we were starting in GOATS, we had somebody who was getting us started and doing things, and I swear they must have said, it was Agda the whole time. And so when I first kind of came up, you know, came into the scene almost 20 years ago, that's what I was, you know, hearing from them and kind of stuck. And so, <laughs> but I am aware that we are the American Dairy Goat Association and uh, will be very cognizant of the fact that it is Agda <laughs> instead of Agda. Okay, I, I just wanted to make sure that we we cleared the air on that. Um, yeah, now, no. <laughs> we do have some ad good news this week. Uh, nothing too crazy, uh, just a couple bullet points here. Uh, there was a special meeting on the 30th of January to fill the empty EC seat, Executive Committee, for those that don't know. Uh, Mark Baden was voted on to the Executive Committee to fill the spot uh, that Ken Feaster-Etchison uh, vacated. And uh, yeah, congrats, Mark. And Ken was the past vice president, or sorry, excuse me, not the past vice president. He was the past president. Mm -hmm. Mark will be the member at large as his official EC position. Yes. Yep. And yeah, the only other thing, uh, Lance sent out his weekly email. And uh, really the biggest takeaway from that was, DNA results uh, now have a turnaround of three to six weeks after you send that to the lab. Uh, so I know, Danielle, you were saying that you were going to uh, test that out by sending out a kit. Um, so yeah, we'll look forward to hearing how that went. Yeah, now I just have to, this will hold me accountable and I'll have to draw hairs on those animals soon. So this way I can say how long it took takes right now and what the current turnaround is, but I'll be happy to report in when we receive those results. Perfect. Uh, now we'll, we'll get onto our topic with Dr. Katie. Um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, reflecting on your education and the start of your career, uh, what did your prior experience as dairy goat breeder give you in terms of like a leg up, uh, did you realize you had a better approach to communicating with clients, a better understanding of what normal is in goats? Uh... Sure. Um, I think it gave me a few things. Um, it's kind of a practical skin, clinical skills standpoint. I was way ahead of my class as far as blood draws and stuff like that. Um, we only had a couple of small ruminant hands-on labs, unfortunately. And so I was able to teach some of my classmates how to draw blood on goats and sheep. And uh, kind of learn some of my own ways to do things that they don't necessarily teach in vet school for for better or worse for honestly. And then um, one of the big things that it helped me with is just prior exposure to disease processes. So of course, having goats for any amount of time, you're going to have some amount of issues. 
And so certainly had a number of does with one problem or another. And that actually helped me out a lot in vet school because instead of just memorizing a whole disease from scratch, I would just write a name down in my notes right next to the disease. And so that kind of helped as far as being able to picture things and be able to understand things better. Of Okay, this is what an E. coli mastitis can potentially look like, or this is Mm -hmm. what ketosis can look like, things like that. And it also gave me kind of a, a head start on dystocia management, whereas a lot of my classmates might not have been able to um, get a hand inside of an animal beforehand to practice managing dystocias, which to take kind of a side note, dystocia is basically any kind of abnormal kidding or calving or anything like that. Um, so I had a lot of experience, of course, there that I wouldn't have had I not grown up with goats. Um Unfortunately, I did get a lot of necropsy experience on my own herd, um, both prior to and during vet school. So a lot of animals that didn't make it for whatever reason and got to open them up just to kind of see what went wrong. And that's actually helped me out a lot during practice because now I'm doing those fairly frequently and I'm able to give producers a really good quick answer to things. Um, Actually, I've gotten a lot of help from being a judge it's really helped me with client communications. I think I came in way ahead of my classmates there because as a judge, of course, you're communicating with shows in advance. You're communicating with exhibitors in the ring. You're keeping it professional all the time. And then another thing that's kind of not directly related to the animals, but I also developed an overall understanding that I can do everything right and still come up short. So on some mm-hmm. of those really challenging cases that I have, Um, Growing up on the farm, of course, you sometimes have those days where you can put in all the effort, you can do everything by the book, and sometimes it's just not enough. And that always frustrated me growing up, thinking like, maybe if I knew more or something like that, and honestly, that was a driver to, to get me to vet school was I wanted to know more, and then maybe I could save them all. Well, turns out you can know quite a bit and still not save them all. Um quite unfortunately. And then the other thing I learned from judging is that um, not everybody's going to like me and that's okay. So I have some clients (laughs) that prefer the other doctor and that's, that's fine. It's no skin off of my nose. It's just one of those things. Oh, for sure. Now a quick, sorry, a quick follow up on that. In your class of um, fellow vets, how many of them ended up in large animal practices? with you. So there were about 120 of us total in my class. And there was a good, I think, 15 to 20 of us that were hardcore large animal during vet school. And of that group, I think five or so right now are in equine specific internships. And then most of them either went into, most of the remaining ones either went into um, large animal or mixed animal practice out of that group of 25 or so. Um, I think I'm the one of the only ones that's ex- exclusively large animal that's not doing an internship right now. And then, of course, oh. the other hundred or so are small animal exclusive. Well, I guess we should kind of rewind a little bit, speaking of, of schooling. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your education and uh, your, your professional background? Sure. So... To back up a little bit, uh, as far as how I got to vet school, I I was very active in 4-H and FFA when I was in high school, and especially in judging teams and public speaking, and I knew I wanted to continue some of that into college. 
So I was a state FFA officer my first year of college and then transferred to the University of Kentucky, which my FFA chapter had visited on our way to the national convention my senior year. And I majored in biosystems engineering at UK, and that was mostly so I'd have a backup plan to vet school because <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people wouldn't get in and I wanted something to do if I didn't make it um, just kind of as a backup plan. And then um, I managed to not get into vet school the first time I applied, like quite a few people. So I tell pretty much everyone that just because you don't get in the first time doesn't mean you're not smart enough. But right. with that extra time, I stayed at UK for biosystems engineering as a master's degree. And uh, I focused on livestock systems, which is more of a barn design kind of thing. My research was on compost bedded pack barns for dairy cattle. So oh, wow kind of an engineering background before vet school so that was kind of kind of unique in that um, I had a pretty solid backup plan and now I can legitimately tell people that I'm not in vet med for the money because I could have <laughs> stuck with the engineering path and not had a quarter million dollars of student loan debt so <laughs> yeah exactly and I don't think people realize how competitive <laughs> vet school really can be yeah exactly so then after my master's degree, I was accepted to vet school, kind of as I was finishing that program up, and then um, met my husband right in the middle of there, uh, two weeks after I interviewed and two weeks before I was accepted to vet school, um, started dating him, and started vet school fall of 2017 at Lincoln Memorial University, which is the relatively new program in Northeast Tennessee. They graduated their first class in 2018, and so I was, I guess that would be, I guess they're fourth or so class in 2020. Oh, wow. Okay. So as a licensed vet going through school um, and everything with that, was there anything that made you say, man, goat breeders are doing this entirely wrong when it comes to small ruminants? There's a couple things. There's not anything that I'd specifically say is really obvious blanket across the country. But kind of two of my pet peeves are, first of all, parasite management. And that's a really big deal, especially where I'm at in the southeast. We just see mm -hmm. so much resistance to all the dewormers. We really don't have that many chemical dewormers to work with. So once we blow through all of those, we're kind of in trouble. And as kind of an example, I, there's one herd that I worked with that, I mean, we've tried copper bolusing. We've tried doing the dual deworming with I chose Cydectin and Belbazin at that time because those were not pregnant at that point. And um, there is one case that really stuck out to me where we had done, we had just done all of that for, I think the second time that summer, and then they lost one. And so I went down and did a necropsy. And this was just a week after I dewormed and everything, opened up the abomasum, which is the true stomach and ruminants where mm -hmm. the barber pool worm tends to hang out. And it was just covered up in barber pole worm, despite the fact that we had just dewormed it at the recommended protocols. And so wow. that's pretty disappointing that we've got that kind of resistance that, I mean, the drugs that have been working just aren't anymore. And I'm fortunate in that in my herd, we've kind of followed the Fomancha protocols and just deworming when we have to pretty much. So we really, really don't have that many resistance issues. But I think it's something that people just don't pay quite enough attention to that this is a really big deal and we really need to pay attention to it. And then the other thing that I think gets overlooked quite a bit is ventilation, managing our barns appropriately to 
keep out ammonia and keep fresh air in while also keeping drafts out can kind of help mitigate issues like pneumonia. So I don't think that gets quite as much attention as it should. I can definitely well, agree with that. And there's your engineering background coming into play as well. Yep, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I can't tell you how many barns I've walked into uh, that you you walk in and you're like, it's pretty stuffy in here, you know, and, and I coming from a, a dairy cattle background growing up, I mean, ventilation's just mm-hmm. king. So uh, it's interesting that people still kind of decide to shut their goats up in these like sheds or whatever and ventilation isn't there. So I think that's, that's a great point. Yeah. One kind of practical thing that I've started recommending people do, especially on kind of like really enclosed barns is I'll have them drop to their knees and see, first of all, is the bedding damp? Do we need to be more careful about making sure we've got enough ventilation to try and keep it dry or enough bedding to keep it, keep counteracting that moisture that builds up. And then second of all, what ammonia level do you smell when you drop to your knees? Because it's going to be greater than what you're smelling as you're kind of walking around the barn. And the ammonia level you smell when you're on your knees is closer to what the animals are experiencing. And any level that you can detect is definitely going to be irritating to the lungs. For sure. No, that's a great, useful tip too. Um, We can all apply. And are you in Kentucky? Do you see a lot of deep packs this time of year or in terms of bedding, what is kind of your normal? It's kind of a mix. Personally, in my barn, we have kind of a deep pack going right now. I just kind of throw straw down as the winter goes on, but my barn is kind of a high roof type of barn with pretty good ventilation anyways. And so that kind of helps to clear out some of that moisture too. Mm -hmm. So, and so, As a licensed vet who has gone from being a breeder like all of us first to now having a ton of knowledge on dairy goat health, how has going through school and being licensed improved your management of your herd? So there's a few things that I've changed and it's really hard to kind of distinguish whether it's been because I've gone to vet school or it's their own thing. So I'll just kind of go through all of them. A lot is due to life changes and then some of it's due to some of the hard losses that we've had. A couple of changes that I've done that I know have been because of vet school are, first of all, I now have written treatment protocols and those are accessible to any caretakers if I'm out of town and everything in my barn is labeled. So I'll have a treatment protocol for scours, for example. So if a goat comes up with scours, There's a treatment protocol for that, and it's really obvious where all the drugs for that are, what the dosage is, things like that. And then the second big thing that I do is I now take temps for several days after travel to monitor for illness, and that helps me catch things early. So, for example, um, my dose did pretty well after nationals this year. I only had one that was just a little bit off, and so I was taking temps on those every day. And that dough, um, in addition to being just slightly off, She was still eating feed, just kind of, we call it ADR, ain't doing right, real technical term. (laughs) Her her temp elevated elevated just a little bit, and so I just went ahead and treated her with new floor, and then it was smooth sailing ever since. So I think that protocol is really helping me to catch issues early. And I've also started using it in any hospitalized dough 
who's um, just in a sick pen for whatever reason, or even if she's in a kidding pen, they get temps taken every day. And same thing with transition does. If they've just kitted up to a week post-kitting, I'll take their temperature and that way I can catch any issues pretty fast. Other than those two things, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Other than those two things, it's a little bit hard to tell what's different. So I can just go through kind of all my management from facility to feeding vaccines if you want. Yeah, sure. So I, I talked a little bit about the barn already. I think that's kind of a big deal. It's positioned for natural ventilation, kind of up on a hill a little bit. But we've got it set up with lots of sliding doors so that we can maximize ventilation in the summertime. And then in the wintertime, we can close it up a little bit, but we don't want it totally closed up because we still want to clear some of that some of that ammonia out. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool about it is it's got a headlock system that my husband designed and built. So I can lock them in at feeding time, and it's really easy to go down the line and give them vaccines. Oh, wow. As far as uh, feeding and stuff, we've got uh, free choice clean water. I'm pretty picky about that. Loose mineral Baking soda, I know that's kind of a controversial topic. Um, I honestly don't really have a scientific reason for the baking soda, other than it should buffer the room and pH. And I'm not 100% sure they're smart enough to know when they need it, as some would say. But they do seem to go through it at varying rates. So I haven't noticed any problems with it, so I'll keep using it. I do BOCI before breeding season, and again, four to six weeks before kidding, because we're definitely selenium deficient area around here. We do free choice hay when pasture is not available, and then we have grain from a local store. I, I'm a big fan of probias, really any kind of probiotic that we use probias at shows and anytime they're under stress. And then I already talked about parasite management as far as uh, checking that FAMACHA score and only really deworming when necessary. So I deworm my goats as little as possible. I tell clients to FAMACHA score once a month. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm not quite that good with my own animals. But I will typically look if I'm casually hanging out with them or if somebody just kind of looks off. But for the most part, I only deworm after kidding. And then I copper bolus once or twice a year. Occasionally, I'll have a couple that need dewormed an additional time. But really, we do pretty good. Um, My kids are on a strict coccidia management program. So I use panazeril every three weeks until weaning or until they're solidly on feed. It's got a good coccidia stat in it. I like calf pro. And if I bottle feed this year, just kind of depending on my schedule, then I might switch to that and then discontinue panazeril, but it just kind of depends. And then the so, kids, I FAMACHA scored them. Go ahead. So for the calf pro, uh, you're going to use that and then switch over to the other product or like, do you, do you do the, uh, what, which one was it? Did you say panazeril? I said that right. Yeah, Panadol. Um, um, so you use that after using the Calf Pro, and you do the whole uh, use that for up until they're weaned. You should should be able to discontinue the Panazeril if you're using the Calf Pro because the Calf mm-hmm. Pro can go in the milk, and you can right. use that up until they're on a grain that's got a good coccidiostat. stat. Okay. And so it's, I think as long as you're on Calf Pro kind of early on, then you shouldn't have to do the Panazeril. Yeah. Our, our listeners are all about the uh, coccidia prevention. I mean, as most 
uh, dairy goat breeders are, because that's really what's going to affect your kids the most as as far as growth goes. Um, And I know like for myself this year, I'm switching over to calf pro. I used to do the whole Corid thing uh, with with Mm -hmm. success. I mean, we didn't have any issues, but uh, we're switching over to calf pro and then also doing once they're on grain, the meat goat uh, grower that's medicated with the coccidia stat. Yeah. And with calf pro, do you have to be concerned about thiamine? Is that something that we have to keep an eye on? And so I hear some people use vitamin or add vitamin B12 as well when they're feeding that. My understanding is it's not quite as bad as Corid about depleting thiamine. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be misremembering that, but I don't think it's as big of a deal as it is with Corid, for example. Okay. Yeah, I always had to make sure I added uh, the vitamin B to it just because I, mm. I obviously knew that growing up. But, um, you know, in yeah. your opinion, for for your herd, what has been the bigger impact, being a dairy goat breeder who is a veterinarian or being a veterinarian that is a dairy goat breeder? Probably being a dairy goat breeder who's a vet. The goats really work to keep me centered. They're kind of a mental health break, honestly, most of the time. Being a vet is great, and I have easy access to medications to try whenever I want, and I can give IV fluids, etc. But being a breeder first is more important to me, and I think that spills over into practice and that small ruminant clients instantly take me more seriously as soon as I tell them that I have goats. I can I could imagine so. I think... I think that's a, a big thing. If uh, my vet, who she doesn't have goats, but she's pretty well versed on uh, small ruminants, um, I think it's good to have that back and forth relationship uh, where you know you're not just talking onto deaf ears. You know, you're not talking to a, a vet that just does equine, right? And they're just like, "Well, it, it's a goat; yeah. it'll be fine." You know, you have a, that same passion that your clients do. So I can definitely see that. Mm-hmm. So then now the next question is, how do you manage the demands of your job? I mean, even when we were talking about scheduling this interview, it was, okay, I'm on call this week or, um, you know, I have, you know, I'm working here doing this, um, being a judge and then the demands of your herd. It's pretty challenging sometimes, honestly. And sometimes it's just about looking at every single day and just what can I do this particular day? So you're not always going to have a perfect balance. The most challenging thing for me right now is just the variability of my schedule. So I never know if I'm going to be done at 5 p.m. or 8 p.m. or even later, especially if I'm on call. So it makes milking and bottle feeding challenging. Last year, I hired my niece to milk for me in the afternoons. And then I would milk again before bed, but she's in college now, so I've got to figure something else out. Uh oh. <laughs> My goats, fortunately, seem to be pretty chill. And uh, yeah, they just will take whoever's willing to feed them and whoever's willing to show up for them. And they, they love routine, but they seem to have adjusted pretty well to not having much routine, if that makes sense. So <laughs> growing up, um, especially for show season, I'd get to the barn kind of early. And the goats would be kind of groggy and not really wanting to get up. And now they don't really seem to care when I go out there. I mean, it can be 4 a.m. It can be midnight as soon as I go out there. 
they jump up and they're ready to eat or whatever. I mean, they don't know when they're going to get their next meal. So <laughs> they seem to be pretty, pretty game for whatever. <laughs> and the way the barn is situated is pretty funny because they can um, stand in their doorway and watch me pull in at night. And usually I won't see them all standing there at once when I first pull in. So I don't know if they've got a little communication system or what to kind of sound the alarm that I'm coming. But by the time I get out of my car, they're all lined up at the fence and they're talking to me. (laughs) Sometimes I get home and it's been a 14 hour day and I'm totally wiped out. So I just kind of do whatever I have to in the barn and then crash. And I'm off every other weekend. So on average, try to catch up then as far as farm stuff and house stuff goes. As far as judging goes, I've had to set pretty strict rules and limitations for myself. So before vet school, I'd judge a ton. I'd judge 12 plus shows in a year. One year I ended up with 24 judging days. So some of those were multi-day shows. Yeah, it was a little crazy, but I had the time to do it then. And then even last summer at just seven shows, I was pretty much worn out. There is about a two month period where I was either on call or judging every weekend. And so this year I've set pretty strict limits and it kind of stinks because I really love judging and traveling, but I just, I just need that time off to be able to keep the balance a little bit. Oh, I I can imagine. I mean, the life of of a veterinarian is not easy. Like there's some really long hours there. So it's, it's pretty understandable. Um, So you know, speaking of your busy schedule, uh, do you plan on going to nationals this year? Are you going to take the year off from nationals? Honestly, it just kind of depends on how the schedule shakes out. If they allow early release and if especially experimentals or, or recorded grades rather or at the beginning of the week, then I'll try and make it. But it's pretty hard this year because that's kind of the tail end of our busy season. We're still wrapping up breeding some mares and few straggler spring calvings so it just really depends i'm hoping that even if i can't make it i can maybe find a ride for a couple up there and i don't know if i can fly up for a day or what but that's still kind of on the fence hopefully you get to get up there i mean you guys you had a pretty good year last year it wasn't too bad (laughs) yeah thanks yeah i've got two of those that i took last year that i'm really hoping to get back in the ring so we'll see Talking about judging and showing, while while you're in the ring evaluating or showing yourself, uh, you know you're evaluating the animals. Uh, you are acting as a judge and, and not a vet, but the veterinarian in you has to have a few thoughts about the animals that you are seeing. Uh, what are some of the common things you see at shows in terms of dairy goat health? Uh, what can we as an industry do better when we are showing our goats? Probably the most glaring issue that I see is over uttering. And I won't always excuse a doe for being over uttered, but you'll definitely see it in placement. If it's a newer exhibitor, I'll probably say something because they really need to learn. Some of them just legitimately don't know, but a lot of offenders are experienced breeders and I honestly know that they know better. So I'll mention utter texture and reasons for sure. But often it also affects animals in general appearance. And so that definitely will affect placement. And then another thing that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is really overweight animals or overconditioned or whatever you want to call them. Goats store a lot of fat internally. 
And so using it to try to hide maybe mediocre front end assembly is just not really a healthy thing for them. And so there's things like that. that, I mean, you can say it certain ways and reasons, but at the end of the day, you're there as a judge and not necessarily a vet. So there's Mm -hmm. some things you got, got to kind of be careful about. And then the other thing that sometimes comes up is um, Nigerian bucks that are over height. Uh, The shoulder joint isn't really a firm joint and that there's a lot of muscle attachment there. And so they can actually adjust their height a little bit with hormones and stuff and they can get kind of puffed up and that's kind of a controversial topic, but obviously I have to, um, obviously I have to go by the measuring stick that particular day, but I will tell exhibitors, okay, this day they are this height and they cannot come in the ring, but I wouldn't not show them next week just because of today. So that's a little controversial. No, but you can see in those Nigerian dwarf bucks how they puff up. You can, you see them in the pasture and the, their natural stance, and then you see them mm-hmm. in the ring, and you just see that chest and the front end assembly. It's there. It's they're trying to be these macho animals, more or less, and yeah. that's what they're doing. And unfortunately, it's you know, as you said, you're measuring by what is coming in the ring at that time and five seconds before or even five minutes after it could be completely different but at that time you have to go with um what what's there i want to jump back really quick to over uttering um you mentioned the conformational issues of um and the utter texture but what are some of the health impacts that could result from a doe being over uttered maybe not necessarily right at that show but afterwards as a result sure so a couple things one just that increased pressure in the mammary system predisposes them to leak milk and leaking milk keeps that teat end open and that just is pretty much an open invitation for bacteria to walk right up there especially if you don't really have good sanitation protocols before and after you go in the ring. And then the other thing is it kind of congests the udder, so it restricts blood flow a little bit, and that can also predispose them to mastitis. Yeah, and and it can also break down the the udder floor, right? I mean, mm-hmm. eventually that pressure is going to cause some kind of damage. I mean, even if it's not mastitis, I mean those ligaments can only hold so much. Yep, exactly. So what would you say are the top skills goat owners should know or have in terms of managing their animal's health? So this time of year, I'd say the biggest one is the social management. So anytime you have an abnormal kidding, Um, that's probably the forefront of my brain the most this year because we're starting to get into that time of year where I've got some kind of dish social call just about every day. So being able to put your hand in there and figure out what's going on, figure out timing-wise how long things have been going on, when you really need to get involved, when you need to call a vet, and then also being able to describe to a vet what you're feeling so that we kind of have an idea of what's going to happen when we get there. Another big thing is just having a conversation with the vet before things become an emergency. I'm not necessarily with dystocias, but if you're having some kind of other problem, 
having a good relationship with your vet so that they kind of are familiar with your operation just kind of helps us know what we're getting into. And then the third thing is just being willing to work with your vet. I know a lot of people aren't really fortunate enough to have what they consider good goat vets around, but a lot of vets are willing to learn. It's just that they don't necessarily have that exposure to goats. Unfortunately, this is the case that vet schools often will teach towards the test. I had kind of hoped going into vet school that if I just paid a little bit more attention to the goat topics that I could learn all of the goat things, but really there's not that much hands-on goat stuff in vet school. And so being able to work with a vet and being willing to teach them a little bit is really beneficial to everybody because then the vet can learn from your herd and you can learn from the vet as well. I, I can definitely see that. I mean, I don't think people realize that in vet school, not saying that I'm, you know, went through vet school or anything, but I can only imagine that the bigger industries where there's more presence in any rural area uh, get the big focus, you know, dairy cattle, uh, beef cows, horses. Uh, but like when it comes to to dairy goats or meat goats, I mean, that's kind of like the small man on the, the totem pole. I mean, not a ton of people have them. I mean, sure, there might be a couple guys in uh, outside of town that have, you know, a couple brush clears. But if you really think about it, uh, when you're when you're thinking of all the breeders that you know in your area, it's pretty spread out. So there's not going to be a vet that has all of that experience. So it makes sense, yeah, that um, maybe maybe it's okay to just work with a vet and say, hey, I have goats and um, this is what we do and. Uh, will you be willing to work with me? I I can totally see that. Yeah. So one quick example of that, a few years ago, before I was in vet school, we actually had a couple of does that needed C-sections. And the the first one that we had, it was that new grad's first C-section ever. And so she carried her textbook out to the barn and we'd turn the pages for her while she was all sterile And we didn't even care that we were her first ever C-section. We were just so thrilled that she was out there willing to try. And I think that's a pretty good attitude to have. Just, I know it's scary being kind of the guinea pig for someone, but just being willing to let them learn and help them learn a little bit is beneficial to everybody. I completely agree. We had a situation. um, I am blessed to have my vet is a solely large animal practice. And currently they have four vets on staff. But of course, when we're calling the vets after having been in goats for several years, we're not calling for your typical routine stuff. It's a really bad dystocia or, um, for kidding or abnormal, you know, what have you. But we used to joke that we would get the um, new vets and have no problem with that because we were the herd and myself and another herd, we were the herds that we gave them the experience of the anything under the sun because that was what, you know, we were calling for at the time. And so when you wanted, when the new vets wanted real world experience, they would come to our herds. I mean, unfortunately we, my herd had a issue with a selenium poisoning. And so under the advisement of our main vet, 
the other vet was there and we got labs that she had before we realized it was a selenium issue. She could not understand what was going on, but now, you know, she has the experience that this was a high selenium poisoning and the labs make sense afterwards, but, um, it's definitely, you know, something to be cognizant of and be appreciating that they're willing to learn and willing to work with you and help with your goats. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I think people don't realize that they're really like, it really is a relationship and you have to value that and treat your vet with, uh, as much respect as you can. I mean, shoot, everybody watches the incredible Dr. Pole and they see how awesome he is. And I think, I think they kind of take that, what they see on TV and they're like, well, why isn't my vet like that? He knows everything. How come mine doesn't? Well, it's, you know, yeah. it's a relationship. He's also been in practice for 50 plus years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's been a number of times where I've gone out to a farm and especially for prolapses where I start doing something and they're like, oh, well, I've seen Dr. Pohl do it. And so I know exactly what you're going to do. I was like, well, okay, sure. <laughs> you're going to pour sugar on it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so if getting back with dairy goats, uh, if, if you could do – only one thing in your management to benefit the overall health of the herd, what would it be? I'd say nutrition. Honestly, I wish I knew more about nutrition. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of ironically, my father-in-law, who I never got to meet because he passed away before I started dating my husband, he was a ruminant nutritionist at UK. And I can only imagine the kind of conversations we would have had. But I wish wow. I knew more about nutrition because it's one of the first places that I look when an operation has problems. Mm. And I know enough to be dangerous, but really just evaluating free choice minerals, checking up on protocols with occasional liver samples. So, for example, um, if you have an animal that dies, even if you know the cause, I think it's often worth submitting a liver sample just to have an idea of where your mineral panels are at. And then feeding good quality forage is important as well as really just grain as needed. I'm not a huge fan of grain except where it's needed. Most animals need some amount of grain supplementation, but really forage should be kind of your mainstay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people tend to pour on the grain thinking that that's going to fix a doe that is milking off all of her condition, uh, which they don't realize that the protein content in that grain is also causing her to produce a little bit more. Uh, than she normally would. So then they don't really balance the uh, fat and carbs without that protein. And that can cause just the condition to keep coming off. And they're wondering why they're spending a million dollars on grain when all they really had to do was kind of switch the feed up a little bit. And they probably would have gotten better results with uh, less feed. Yep. I mean, at least that's, that's my take on it. I mean, I have a dough that... She milks off everything, and, and if I didn't switch up her feed, she'd be skin and bones, like look like I never fed her a day in my life. Meanwhile, I'd like, throwing everything at her, but I found that more fat and, and more carbs, usually in the form of a senior horse feed, uh, alongside that grain, uh, tends to uh, bulk her back up. Yeah, figuring out what works for each individual, though, is important. I, 
Well, they're all they're all such queens. I mean, let's face it. You've got yeah, some exactly. that will, you know they won't touch beet pulp, and then you got another one that doesn't like anything without black oil sunflower seeds, just barely tri- trickled on top. I mean, they're just they really are fickle animals. They're almost like dogs, where they all have their unique uh, personalities and quirks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to build off that feed thing uh, real quick. Um, I got quite a few messages about uh, what I'm about to talk about here. So I kind of want to set it straight. <clears throat> and if you don't know the answer, that's that's perfectly fine. But a few episodes ago, Nate and I discussed our own practices on feeding bread doughs. I stay light on the grain feeding a scoop to a group. So uh, like the tractor supply scoop, you know. Uh, so they aren't getting too much, but still feel they are, you know, getting something special. And when they get closer to kidding, I'll back even further down on grain. The whole time they're getting as much hay and fresh water and, and minerals as they want. Uh, so my approach and thinking is I want to curb, you know, those unnecessarily big kids. Uh, my kids aren't small. Uh, as you know, Oberhasli, especially buck kids, can be quite big. Uh but I haven't been seeing those huge kids uh, at Kidding doing, you know, this management practice that I've been doing. Am I way off base here in my thinking, or is there anything to that? Yeah, I think you're on track, honestly. The last trimester or so is definitely kind of a fine balance between providing enough energy that we don't run into pregnancy toxemia, but also keeping mm-hmm. kids a manageable size. So. Personally, I prefer a pretty moderate protein diet, so about 12% average, and some of that's from forage, and just as needed, some of that's from grain supplementation. So you're certainly right, I think, to at least limit grains to kind of what's needed, but it's all about that energy balance. And ideally, we could figure out the nutritional demands of each dough and kind of tailor our feeding to that. So, for example, by ultrasounding, 45 to 50 days or so of gestation to get an accurate count. Because the nutritional demands of a doe that's carrying just one kid is very different from a doe that's carrying three kids. And with that in mind, high forage quality is important so that you shouldn't need as much grain supplementation. And another kind of key thing that people forget about a lot of times is that fat does are more likely to, first of all, consume less late in gestation because they've got some internal fat taking up space. And then also mobilize fat to create energy. And that mobilization impairs the liver's ability to create glucose, basically. We call it gluconeogenesis. So keeping those a moderate body condition score is really important. Another thing that we can do to kind of prevent ketosis is using rumensin or monensin to modulate volatile fatty acid productions more towards propionate. And that can kind of reduce pregnancy toxemia a bit. But ultimately, just watching those closely in that last trimester managing your nutrition appropriately, and not hesitating to test them for ketones, whether that's with urine strips or with a blood meter, just so you can catch any kind of issues quickly is really important. And what are some key signs you always look for um, in terms of pregnancy, toxemia, or ketosis? So the first signs, a lot of times, just them being off feed. And so that can be either a primary ketosis or a secondary ketosis. So if primary ketosis is just they're not getting in enough energy and that's their biggest issue, 
And secondary is more, they've got something else going on. So maybe they've got a subclinical pneumonia. Maybe they've got some kind of a ruminal acidosis, something going on that's causing them to not eat as much. And so that'll be one of your first signs. And you can get into some more advanced signs depending on the severity. So you might see some neurological signs like eye twitching or seizures if they're really bad off. Um, one of the signs that I've learned to recognize lately is if their feet gets kind of swollen, um, usually that's when you're getting pretty high up in the ketone level. So we try not to get quite that far, but those are a few of the key signs. Hmm. And it, it'd probably be easy to say that uh, one of the best ways to curb that, I know it's winter time and a lot of people have their animals shut up in their barns uh, because it's, it's, you know, cold out. Right. Or, you know, you've got snow on the ground, but it's probably a good bet that you might want to get your animals out and about, uh, you know, doing more than just loafing around uh, to curb some of those uh, pre-kidding problems like ketosis and everything like that. Yeah. Moderate exercise is good for them. I mean, you don't want to go like running them all over the pasture, stressing them out. But yeah, getting them out and walking around a little bit is a good thing for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you see all these show herds that'll have them. I mean, they're in beautiful facilities, and it's not like they're cramped up. But uh, you know, if they want to kick up their heels, they might get beaten up by the next animal. You know, the animal next to them. So, um, yeah, I've always tried. I've always tried to just, I you know, snow stinks, but they, they get over it, right? They're gonna find a patch yeah. that's not snowy, <laughs> and uh, I just that's always been my one thing, uh, even. Maybe it's the dairy cattle background, but uh, it's just to let them have that free space to be able to stretch their legs if they want, especially those uh, those yearlings that are going to be kidding as first fresheners. Right. Uh, you know, they're mm -hmm. only going to be so big. Right. So if you're able to curb some issues by getting them some exercise, I mean, it's a pretty simple thing. Yep. Mine hate the snow, but I still will give them the opportunity to go outside and get over it and play a little bit. <laughs> They've started to kind of come around to it, but they're kind of princesses. Yeah, mine are too. I Today, I took them out <laughs> after unburying the fence and uh, you know had to drag a couple out by their collars. And by the time they got out there, they were okay. <laughs> yeah. Oops, <laughs> that's my herd too we had horrible wind drifts or snow drifts with the wind and kind of cleared a path and put their hay outside and said sorry this is where you're eating today you've been in the barn for too many days and you need to get out <laughs> and it also kind of goes back to i think what you were saying originally or you know at the start of the episode about preventing pneumonia too um or pneumonia built or ammonia, sorry, ammonia buildup, that they're out and breathing fresh air instead of being in that barn. Yep, for sure. So there's uh, one thing that I've always wanted to have as a topic on this show, and, and I'll find that right person someday. But, you know, I just kind of want to bring light to, you know, the elephant in the room when it when you know, we're talking about veterinarians. I mean, it's a, it's a profession that brings a lot of stress and with that stress and long hours, uh, there's seems to be, you know, mental health issues with veterinarians. Um, do you see 
now that you've gone through school and everything, uh, like, I, I guess what I want to ask is how do you curb those mental health issues and, and kind of keep trucking? Cause I know it can be a very stressful profession. Yeah, sure. Thanks for bringing that up, John. Cause it is a big deal. They've started talking about it a lot more in vet school. And so, um, I was actually had kind of a hard time in vet school for a little while, just coping with being away from my herd that much. And sometimes it was just a little bit depressing. Of why am I doing all this? If by the time I get back home, none of the goats are going to be around that I started with. And then um, it is kind of a lonely profession sometimes in that you're expected to be strong. And especially on the small animal side, you go straight from a euthanasia right into new puppy exam and, maybe not a lot of time in between to adjust. And there's a lot of pressures as far as financially, there's the student loan burden. Um, it's pretty hard for most of us to be able to fathom kind of paying off our student loans. And yeah, there's certainly a lot of stressors and it's really important to be able to have a good support group around you, whether that's your family or at work, just having a boss who's understanding and kind of can read you pretty good and know what all you can take. And being able to have a place you can kind of come home to and unwind a little bit, whether that's, for me, it's just sitting out with the goats, just kind of hanging out with them. Um, sometimes I don't feel like that when I get home, but especially on like a really rough day, I'll just go hang out with the goats and just sit with them and kind of enjoy being around them. But yeah, mental health is a pretty big deal in the veterinary profession. And, um, there's a lot of issues with suicide. I don't remember the exact statistics, but it is something that's important to talk about. And both on the small and large animal side, it's important to be kind to your vet, understand that uh, while whatever you have going on is a big deal, they do have other things going on and pretty stressful schedules sometimes. So just trying to be kind of understanding to all of the pressures that the profession brings is important for sure. You know, 100%. Um, you know, it seems that a lot of times with livestock, when the vet's called, it's like most, most likely it's like the worst case scenario, right? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going in <laughs> and just petting, you know, petting a puppy or, or, uh, you know, checking out a cute goat. Uh, I mean, most of the time there's, it's like a severe situation for that person. And a lot of times you're probably mm -hmm. met with people that are stressed out and aren't probably the nicest. So, um, I can, you know, see why the stats are that they are for veterinarians, unfortunately. Um, so I just kind of wanted to bring light to that. You know, I've, I've always been, uh, you know, a real, I've always been favoring in advocating for mental health, um, and, you know, with farmers or, or, you know, vets, I mean, it's a big thing and you just so happen to wear both those hats. So I'm sure, uh, you deal with your own stuff. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, Daniel, did you want to add anything here? No, I just wanted to jump in. I mean, I'm, you know, kind of going a little bit more, um, lighthearted after. Yeah, sorry like, about that. Know, no, no, no. <laughs> I think it's something that needs to be brought up and I, but, um, just kind of switching gears. Let's talk a little bit more, Katie, about your herd um, and the animals in your barn now. I mean, we talked about your management, but let's kind of dive into the goats in your barn. And so 
if you don't mind telling us a little bit about just kind of some of the cool animals that you have there or and where your plans are going with your herd. Sure. So I've got a few things going on. Uh, first of all, my kind of early path in dairy goats is a little bit all over the place. Just as a 4-H'er, not really sure what breed I wanted to go with. We started out with an over, well, we started out with pygmies first. And then that was just a clear brush. And eventually found the Oberhasley at a local show. Kind of fell in love with them. But then we moved around to a couple of different breeds and still had just one or two Oberhasley. And anyways, at this point, we're now to pretty much all Oberhasley were experimental. Some of the experimental those are ones that were graded up from some of my earlier animals back from when I had Lamanches. And then my Oberhasley, most of them at this point are all from the same dam line. So they all go back to one of my first goats that I got when I was in 4-H back in 2003 or so is when we bought her. And so that's kind of fun. So my ultimate goal is to kind of get everything of a fairly similar type and bring in that line a little bit more into some of the other experimental lines. But in addition to that particular line and the ones that are graded up for my Lamanches, I bought a Colorama sale though a couple years ago ago, the first experimental Colorama sale, though. Her name is Will Leah, the boss's daughter, and she's pretty cool, honestly. Um, she was actually kind of an impulse buy. I was sitting ringside at the Colorama sale, and of course, no one thinks they can really afford a Colorama sale animal, and I was just kind of casually listening to the genetics behind her, and next thing I know, she's going in my opinion, too cheap. And so I had to do something about that. And next thing I know, I ended up buying a goat. And so she's been a really fun doe to work with. She's matured into everything I've hoped for. And then some, she was second in her class at nationals this past year. So she's one that I'm pretty excited about. She's got a daughter in the herd that is half Alpine and she's over type. And so through her, I've gotten a couple of other daughters, one of which was third at nationals this year in the junior kid class. And those two does are pretty exciting, uh, those junior kids, because they pull in some of my older Oberhasley lines. And so they're really kind of the type that I'm striving for. And that's a pretty exciting lineup right now is all the offspring from Dottie. And um, especially once I've pulled in one of my original does, I lean into that line. It's pretty exciting place to be. Um, not really consistent in type, but we're kind of, we're working on it. We're still fairly young for as long as I've been breeding dairy goes, just a few different lines that I'm trying to get some consistency out of at some point, but we'll get there. Well, now I what is you your idea? Short. I was, sorry. I was going to say, uh, no, I, I feel like you, <laughs> I feel like you sell yourself short a little bit. I mean, you've got <laughs> kind of what I love with Oberhasley uh, now is you've got some of that old style Oberhasley quote unquote, but you've freshened mm -hmm. it up with either Alpine or something else. And now you've got these honestly tanks that are nice and long stretched out um, and, you know, beautiful general appearance. I think you're headed in the right direction, especially with those junior does of yours. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about them. You so what be. is your ideal type? <laughs> and now I get to ask my question. <laughs> um, what is your ideal type? And you, when you're, you know, talking about, Oh, this one's closer in type to what I want. What are you looking for? 
So there's a doe in my barn right now, White Rock Farm HD Ivette. Uh, she finished this past spring just before turning two. And she's pretty much, to me, I mean, you could nitpick all you want, but just about the ideal general appearance for me. I'd certainly like to improve her overall mammary capacity, but uh, I've got plans for that. <laughs> she's the correct overall utter shape, and she's just got all the right parts. And so if I could get a million does in my barn, well, maybe not a million. I don't think I can milk a million, but you know what I mean? <laughs> if I could get my whole barn to be roughly looking like her, then that would be pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I just look at your animals and like you have, there's, you know, obviously when I go to uh, interview my guests, I like will look at, you know, their herds and all this stuff. And you have this one doe that's uh, like a cream color. She's Sonnen type. Yeah, that's Dottie. Dottie. Yeah. And that's her colorama. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But you've got her. And then her daughters, and it's just like, man, like, sky's the limit for this one. But the, the only thing that I think about is, like, man, if she ever wanted to go, uh, you know, breed to Oberhasley and grade back up, you got to worry about that white. <laughs> yeah, she's had some really interesting kids, honestly. Um, I bred her AI last year to a buck that I used to own, and he was a solid black alpine buck. It's actually the mm-hmm. sire of Delilah, who's a correct Oberhasley colored pretty bay doe. And that breeding produced a solid white kid, like a single solid white doe kid. So I actually sold her just because she doesn't quite meet my goals. But yeah, that sauna and white's always going to be there. And then another kind of fun color she's turned is this nice, pretty Guernsey color. So I've kind of got that in the back of my mind. I'm trying not to do a third breed, but she occasionally does throw a Guernsey colored kid. So (laughs) what's one more breed? We need more Guernsey breeders. Exactly. And you have a few generations that they would be experimentals anyway, so. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) You have so much time on your hands. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so much time. In your spare time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Uh, You know, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. If, If people wanted to learn more about your herd or you, where can they find you so we're on facebook it's white rock farm wv uh right now my parents are kind of taking over that for the most part with the boar and the cattle postings but occasionally i'll post on there with some dairy goat stuff and then we've got a website that is mostly up to date at this point i've got to add in some fresh pictures of a few of them but that's whiterockfarm.com and that's got our breeding chart and everything and all the genetics are on there Perfect. Well, Danielle, if you don't have anything else to add, I can wrap her up. No, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, This was a great interview. I learned a lot and I feel like I'm going to myself be listening back to this episode a few times just to really soak in all the points that Katie brought with this interview and trying to apply it to my own management. And I just really appreciate Katie, you taking the time and sitting and talking with us about all of these things. Yeah, no problem. I've really enjoyed it. Well, yes. Again, thank you so much. And thank you everybody for listening. I'm John. 
That's Danielle. Danielle. (laughs) We'll work on that. Sorry, guys. (laughs) And Dr. Katie Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody, this has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. We'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.